Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Shares for beginners. A lot of investors that experience the GFC have been permanently, literally traumatized by that event. People who had margin loans were wiped out and they will never touch shares. However, the new generation goes, I can't save for a deposit. I'm going to be here forever. Yet I have my money in the bank and I'm receiving absolutely nothing for it. Why wouldn't I want to be a part of this new investing paradigm and revolution? G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. There's a certain simplicity to owning shares. It's not like the commitment required to buy a property. You can buy tiny bits of the largest companies in the world across a vast range of industries. All you need is a broking account and a will to learn. My guest today is Danielle Okuye, who has written a couple of fantastic books called Shareplicity and Shareplicity 2. Hello, Danny. Oh, thank you, Phil. Lovely to chat with you. Oh, lovely to meet you finally. I've been stalking you on Twitter for years. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, hopefully I didn't say anything too bad. No, no, no. It's all all good. Danielle, you pursued a successful career in international equities, stockbroking and wealth management for 15 years. You trained and worked as an Australian equities analyst in Sydney and in 1990 you moved to London where you were employed as a director in senior positions at some of the world's preeminent financial firms. How was um, London in the city in the 90s? Must have been a fun place. It was amazing. It was seriously good fun, particularly at Bearings, where I uh, spread my wings and went on to do emerging markets. So that was an incredible journey because it was a bull market at the time, like we're seeing in equities here in the US and Australia. And overseas institutions, large pension funds, unit trusts could not get enough of emerging markets. So we were very spoilt up until the Asian currency crisis. So what sort of work were you doing there? What was the role? Basically, I transitioned from being an equities analyst to institutional sales, and I moved from Australia to do smaller emerging markets and then global emerging markets. And basically, we would be the interface between the research departments and the clients in terms of advising senior clients on what stocks to hold, what sectors to hold, what country allocations for their emerging market portfolios. So presumably you've got some uh, some experience in this space. Emerging markets? Yes, I don't touch them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then you retired to have a son and become a full-time investor on your own behalf. That was a, must have been a big decision to leave a, a well-paying job. Yes, it was. Uh, life is a journey and it has many twists and turns. I did make that decision when I moved home from the UK when I got divorced. I actually decided not to go back into the industry personal decision so I could actually be full-time to raise my son because it's such a demanding job. And over a period of about seven years, I tried a whole lot of different other fund managers, basically stockbrokers like I was. They're renowned for being very poor managers of their own money or other people's money. So a lot of us were always not predisposed towards managing our money. But by the time I had kind of cut my teeth on a few different fund manager options and decided I could lose my own money with little cost, I decided to take control, which is basically what I did. 
at the start of the GFC. And uh, I've been managing my money ever since. So that's really interesting that you say that, that um, stockbrokers aren't very good at managing their own money. Why is it like the plumbers who, <laughs> who don't have good plumbing at home or the, the sound engineers with crappy loudspeakers? So stockbrokers are very good at advising people on what to do, but sometimes for some reason they're not always that great on managing their own risk and managing their own money. But I have learned over time how my risk tolerance works what I like to invest in, and uh, I'm far too headstrong now for anyone to advise me. It wouldn't be a good idea. Are you a bit of a rev head? You seem to like your car analogies. Tell us about those. When I started writing the first book, the hardest thing for any author is to start the first chapter because you have one chance of engaging a reader. And a lot of books on share investing are very dry, are very bland, are very numerical, are very about the analytical process of fundamental analysis or technical analysis. And for many, many years, I had been engaging in shares about the culture of companies. Companies are ecosystems of people and they all tend to vary substantially. So when I was sitting watching Ford versus Ferrari, which I happen to adore as a film, the first chapter of the book started to write itself in my head. And the reason was, is that here I was presented on screen with two very, very different corporate cultures, with two very different outcomes of what they were trying to achieve. And I felt it was a great way to explain to new investors or existing investors that culture, quality of a company are incredibly important, but because they're sometimes deemed as qualitative analysis, not quantitative analysis, a lot of people find it very hard to understand. So that was the premise for the first chapter of Shareplicity, A Simple Approach to Share Investing. And so with the second book, you uh, continued with the car analogy as well. Yes. Again, I started with a transformational company, Tesla, that I believe is changing the world. It's furiously contested on Twitter whether or not this is a well-understood company or not a well-understood company. I used it as a company that was synonymous for change and an analogy for what the book was going to present going forward by comparing Tesla against Ford Motor Vehicles. So in the first book, you cover the basics of investing in shares. What are some of the economic fundamentals that you start talking about in the book? So there's two ways to look at the share market. You have what's called the macroeconomic view, which is the big picture economic view. And it has had a very material impact on not only shares, but all asset classes over the last four decades. So I describe in both books how you look at the likes of inflation, how that impacts on the likes of interest rates, how central banks have used monetary policy, i.e. changing the interest rate settings, to create growth or to slow things down. And it's very important because interest rates have a direct bearing upon whether or not we want to take our money out of the bank, put it in the share market, but also on valuations in terms of some people that do discounted cash flows and general PE uh, analysis. So we always start with the big picture and then we move to what's called the bottom-up approach. So the big picture is the top down and then we move to the bottom-up approach. Can you explain discounted cash flow, please? Discounted cash flow is basically an analyst sits there and forecasts two, three, four, five, ten years out the profit and loss statement of a company. Once you derive the profit, 
you calculate the payout ratio, how much you expect they're going to pay out in dividends, you calculate the forward dividend stream, you apply what's called a discount rate, which is an interest rate attached to uh, what you expect will be in the future to bring it back to a present value. It's quite complicated, but basically you're trying to attach a value in the present to what you think you are going to receive in terms of a dividend income stream in the future. But in terms of analysing companies, it doesn't just have to be, you know, dividend discount models. It can be just purely discounting out into the future the the profits that you expect a company is going to make in 10 years' time and then applying a PE multiple of that to try and work out a future price in 10 years by way of example. So how would a beginner, you know, start to look at these kind of figures? It might be a little bit hard right from the beginning. And if you want to take, as you say, a bottom-up approach, you're going to start to need to understand some of these concepts? I think for beginners, it's really important that you don't have to do these calculations. I don't think that is what you should be trying to do. And I think that too many people get totally bogged down in trying to say to people, you have to sit there and calculate the PE of every company you buy. Companies now are so well covered, whether it's institutions, so Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, there are online financial information news surfaces which will give you all of this information. What retail investors need to understand is what those ratios mean and how they interact on a relative basis. And this is something that I really believe firmly in. A lot of people would say, well, that's too simplistic, but it's not really because understanding the difference between how a valuation on a cyclical company versus a growth company is as important as knowing how to do it. But as a retail investor, you don't have the time, the resources to sit there and analyze and do your own spreadsheets. And why would you reinvent the wheel when you've got, you know, 50 plus excellent brains doing all of that for you? Your job, in my humble opinion, is to look at that information and be able to differentiate between who is a good source of fundamental analysis and what position they are coming from versus somebody that you would maybe question. And that's really how we had to operate as institutional salespeople. We would have, you know, 10 inches of paperwork, fundamental analysis arrive on our desks every two days. To think we read that cover to cover, although some of the guys tried to, but they're still dreaming. You basically had to absorb who you felt was a good analyst. The premise on which they were making their forecasts is incredibly important because a forecast is only as reliable as the inputs that they put into it. So again, in the books, I explain the technical aspects to people when I say technical, you know, what a PE ratio is, what a dividend yield. But I don't think anybody should be trying to do that. It's different if let's say you have lots of money and you say, I'm only going to buy 10 stocks. And I've got, let's say, $10 million and I'm putting a million dollars just into those 10 stocks. So you're taking what we call high conviction bets. Then you really want to be very comfortable that you understand the risk that you are taking per each stock. But for most people, they're not going to take those high conviction bets. And if they are doing it, they really have to understand their risk of what they're trying to achieve. And this is why 
a lot of the investing is not about being able to calculate every single number yourself, but is to interpret what quote unquote the experts are telling you. And I think this is where most people come terribly unstuck because they do not understand why one expert says this and then another expert has a completely diametrically opposed point of view. And that's really where the books try and draw out how you have to come to terms with understanding the premise of their assumptions. People hear the terms growth and value investing and they're not mutually exclusive and you don't need to get caught up in that, I believe, from what I've seen in your book. And so explain to us the difference between growth and value and also what interest rates may have to do with that. Absolutely. So typically value shares are what we call cheaper, which means they're on lower price to earnings multiples. They typically are cyclical shares, so more traditional, sometimes old economy stocks. So you're talking the banks, the materials companies here in Australia. They could also be overseas, the likes of a Procter & Gamble. And the thing about those shares is that there are investors that always want to buy everything cheaply, cheaply being on a very low price to earnings valuation. On the contrasting side, you have growth slash technology companies, which have a completely different business model. And that business model is that they are investing heavily to grow for the future. And Amazon is the classic case that is always trotted out. Amazon would not declare any earnings because they were reinvesting to build another billion dollar storage facility. So the point with those growth companies is is that their earnings are very forward looking. They're not 6 months, 12 months out. So applying a PE multiple to something that makes no earnings makes no sense. But for you as the retail investor, again, if you're listening to a fund manager, because there's a lot of information that comes to Australian investors now from fund managers, those experts, you need to understand when you are listening to one that they will be a value investor and they will push really, really hard to buy this stock that's really cheap and it's been underperforming for a long while. And that's absolutely fine as long as you realise that they are never going to tell you to buy an afterpay, to buy a Amazon or to buy a zero, for example, because it just will always be too expensive. And the argument is because interest rates have been trending down for the last 40 years, is that interest rates, the lower they are, the more they support investing for growth, as in growth companies. And only this time around in this economic cycle have we been seeing a big switch back to value companies because we had such a sharp, short, severe recession that those companies have bounced back very strongly. But don't get too, as you say, mixed up between value and growth. It's more important that the business model that you're buying into you understand and whether the relative valuation of that company is at the higher or the lower end of where that type of company should trade. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Why is shares the way to build real wealth as opposed to, say, property? I don't think it's an either-or. I think that because property has become very expensive across the globe for owner-occupiers, people are looking to shares and you've had this incredible confluence of events that has occurred as a result of the pandemic. So suddenly people are locked at home, they're working from home, they receive stimulus payments, stock markets crash and there are all these low-cost trading platforms. It was the retail investors that led the markets out of the malaise of the March 2020 crash. And I think that a lot of investors that experience the GFC have been permanently, literally traumatised by that event. People who had margin loans were wiped out and they will never touch shares. However, the new generation goes, I can't save for a deposit. I'm going to be here forever. Yet I have my money in the bank and I'm receiving absolutely nothing for it. Why wouldn't I want to be a part of this new investing paradigm and revolution, which has obviously been supported by the strength in the markets. So I've always said one differentiates between what the assets that one holds. I would probably never have 100% in shares, nor would I have 100% in property. I, however, was fortunate enough to be able to get on the property ladder very early. What I would say is that both asset classes are now inextricably linked. And that is not going to change. Central banks have almost wedged the financial system into a position where there is so much debt and asset prices are so high and interest rates are so low, we can't even envisage rates going even back to 4% without the whole system unravelling. And I think that's a really interesting topic, not for today, but how do we actually take the financial system forward? But I think for most people at the moment, buying great quality shares that are operating in what I call secular growth markets, these mega trends that are existing, you are trying to buy what was an Amazon 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, and you literally just ride the growth that that company can produce. Why do blokes like stock tips? Is it fear of doing hard work? Mm. No, if anything, I think guys usually spend a lot of time doing a lot of work. I've yet to work out what they're doing, but they do do. <laughs> <laughs> do a lot. They appear to be doing a lot of work. <laughs> they appear, exactly. Gosh, my, my former colleagues would be furious with me if they could hear this. I think women probably are a little bit more cautious and conservative. I read a really good piece by a guy, Professor Scott Galloway, who is a professor out of New York, a marketing guru, and he did a piece on Robin Hood. And Robin Hood has promoted young men punting on options because they make a lot of money out of it. And they also sell the data to big hedge funds. And I think the lure of getting rich quickly is so, so strong. And it's a very, very basic instinct. 
And I think men are quite hardwired into that. I haven't seen gambling statistics, whether more men or more women get addicted. I have no idea. But for some reason, guys really like to take that high-risk punt that they feel can bring home the bacon. And it's kind of like, if I get rich just once, then I give up for life. But it takes nothing into account in terms of the risk of what they're actually doing. It's probably something as simple as it's some form of hardwired disposition that men have to risk-taking. And younger men, as we all know, I don't think I'm stating anything that hasn't been said many times by medical experts, their brains take longer to develop and that's why young guys kind of do crazy things. And it probably plays itself out, I think, in the share market as well. It's funny because guys go, you know, you can't possibly buy Tesla. I'm a huge Tesla fan, as you probably worked out. You go and buy this small gold miner instead or something, some small biotech. And I go, well, how does that work? (laughs) I don't understand how you could say yours was a definite punt and it's not risky. When Tesla, of course, has risk, but they're actually producing, you know, potentially up to a million cars this year. Like, disconnect, don't see it, don't understand it. Yeah, let's face it, that uh, small end of the ASX is littered with the bodies of investors who've gone into biotechs and uh, and gold miners, aren't they? Absolutely. And I just don't understand, I guess, the lure of like a share that doubles, goes from one cent to two cent is very compelling. But they can also go to 0.01 cent as well. And that's what people always forget. And a one cent share can still drop by 90%, can't it? Correct. <laughs> just as easily. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. What role do dividends play in an investment strategy? Dividends should be considered in association with the capital appreciation of the share price. So people often look at dividends in isolation. They say, I buy the share and it's got a yield. So the income produced as a percentage is 2, 3, 4, 5% in some cases. And of course, if it's Australia, you have your franking credits. But it needs to be considered in conjunction with the capital appreciation in the price. And what the first book explores is those companies that have the ability to not only grow your profits, you can also grow your dividends, but you also have significant enough cash flow to reinvest for the future. And that's the sweet spot of a company you want to own. You don't necessarily want to buy the highest dividend yielding companies because normally they're the companies that have not invested for the future. They become what we call a value trap. There's lots of examples in the ASX. There's lots of examples in the US. I think, I can't remember off the top of my head. Banks. (laughs) Yes, banks are a classic case in point, particularly not Commonwealth Bank, but the other three. Absolutely. Very, very much so. And they're also, I think, increasingly you're going to see it in the like of some of the uh, companies like ExxonMobil. There's a lot of them out there. So, On a relative basis, if you see a very high yield, you have to have a serious look at the earnings profile of that company. If you were to take Apple, which I've been looking at recently and comparing it, well, Apple and Microsoft, two top performers, their performance over the last five years, they've well exceeded that of BHP and Commonwealth Bank. Even though BHP is at record share price, it's going to have record payouts because of the high iron ore price. The thing about both Apple and Microsoft is they've been able to consistently generate above average earnings growth and pay dividends. 
So that's kind of the sweet spot. And I think companies like Tesla will be generating so much cash flow. One will be have to ask oneself, are they going to pay dividends or will it come in share buybacks? So it's that Goldilocks scenario. You don't want it too necessarily cold, like a really super high growth company with big losses for a long time, or too hot, like, wow, big fat juicy dividends, but oh my gosh, my shares just halved in value, as in Telstra. In the second book, you move on to international shares. How do you start venturing out into the big wide world here in little old Oz? The easiest way for most people is through exchange traded funds. And there is an increasing list of ETFs here in Australia that will provide exposure to the broader indices, NASDAQ, S&P, but also those secular themes. So that's the easiest way to do it. Then they've got all the different low-cost options with Stake, for example. I haven't been onto their platform, but they make it much easier for investors to buy into US shares and probably fractionated US shares, I imagine. They are, yes. I've had a little bit of a play around with it. I've got some a nice little biotech company, in fact. Right. <laughs> Fractions of shares of that and GoPro via Stoke. Yeah, just giving it a go. Yeah, it's interesting because an investor approached me the other day from one of those you know, investing groups and started talking about custodian risk for owning US shares. And it's just worth pointing out to everybody, it's a bit like when you go and buy Bitcoin You've got to be really careful to know where that's sitting. It's the same with US shares. So I use Comsec, who use Pershing, which is part of Bank of New York Mellon, who did not go under, quite obviously, in the GFC. So my counterparty risk, as in that trustee that's holding those shares on behalf of me, I know they're not lending them out. I know they're not doing anything silly. So the one thing I would say to people with all these new platforms, you really need to do your homework to find out how your shares are being held. And I haven't had the time yet to look into all of these. I think probably for most people, ETFs are a good way to go. And you start until you evolve up to a certain amount of money in an ETF. And I call that the backbone of the portfolio. And then you put the ribs on to give you a bit of kicker in performance, which you can start adding stocks to by way of example. If you want to open a US account, it's not terribly difficult. You will have to fill out a tax form and it has more relevance for the dividends you receive rather than the capital gains tax. But you can buy directly, obviously, into the US markets, which increasingly I think some younger Australians or actually a mix of Australians are doing. But it's very exciting today, Phil, because Square is going to have a dual listing in Australia and the US. Is it Afterpay or Square? Square. Are Square are going to be dual listed as well, are they? Well, not Afterpay because Square's taking over Afterpay. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you will receive Square shares and for Australian shareholders, they will get the equivalent Square shares that are listed in Australia. They'll be like a depository receipt. So yeah, that's really exciting. That's a really big deal. That's a big deal for the Australian market. That's like seriously important. It is, and um, that's because Jack Dorsey's the owner of Square, bloke that owns Twitter as well. We often talk in the finance industry in this perfect world where people have got mortgages and they've got superannuation, they've got good paying jobs, and they've got the capacity to have excess funds to invest in markets. There are some people that don't have this kind of wherewithal. Where can they start investing? How can they be helped? 
That's a really good question because at the end of the day, even to use the raise platform, micro investing, so if you go shopping and every 10 cents they round it up and it goes into an ETF product, you still need to have access to debit cards, a bank account and all of these things. And there are obviously large chunks of the population that really, really struggle. I don't have the answers to that. I do think, though, that technology has really opened everything up substantially. So I saw an ad that Square has done in the US through your Square payment system, or actually it's their cash app that they have. You can start to invest with as little as a dollar in shares in the US. And I think that in the same way as technology came to our saviour during the pandemic to allow us all to interact at some level when we couldn't do it physically, I think that technology is going to continue, quote unquote, the democratisation for smaller investors to be able to get involved. That, of course, leads to the next question of how do central bankers and governments then control the beast that they are creating? Because the way that monetary policy has evolved, it is forcing pretty much everybody to invest, which is great. We need people to invest. We want them to invest in ways that can change the world for hopefully a positive. But it equally means that that system can never be allowed to shake or have an earthquake because the tentacles are so deep into society. And I think this is probably one of these things that while we're all bullish and it's all very positive, we do have bull markets at the moment. And of course, everybody wants to be part of that. But we also have to realize that at some point, there will be a correction in markets and people have to prepare for that and be ready to say, well, don't panic at the first instance. But generally speaking, I think technology is going to allow for many more people to hold their favorite shares. And that's kind of exciting because I'm a great believer that it's the younger generation now, it's their world, it's their vision, how they want to see it, how they want to grow it. And I'm hoping that they have the ability and the wherewithal to start to use their money to create the world they want to see. Yep, that's right. They're in charge now, aren't they? (laughs) Well, they're not in charge, but they have the potential to, let's say, exercise their democratic rights in ways other than the ballot box. (laughs) So tell us a bit about the books and where people can find out more about you and more about the books and um, to buy the book as well. Yeah, both of the books are online. Um, So they're Booktopia, Amazon, all good bookstores. My website, you can find a lot of information. You can buy author signed copies from my website, but also there are interviews, media pieces, blog articles. I've started doing my own shareplicity talks with different interesting people, although that's very embryonic. And I'm across Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. <laughs> I draw the line at Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where are you going to get your recipes from? <laughs> we'll put all of those links in the show notes in the blog post as well so people can find them easier. But uh, Daniela Cuyé, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Phil. 
If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.